Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fund Caliber. In today's episode, we delve into the fascinating world of global multi-asset funds, exploring themes that are at the forefront of investment discussions, including the role of big government, the impact of globalization, navigating inflationary pressures, and the potential of alternative assets. I'm Chris Sarley, and today we're joined by Paul Flood, who manages the BNY Mellon Multi-Asset Income Fund, a fund that's recently been given elite rating by Fund Calibre. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Thanks very much for having us. Let's give a bit of an intro to the fund, given it's recently been added to our elite list. Um, so clearly, you've you've managed this portfolio through a very busy and challenging time in markets. We've had the likes of Brexit and the pandemic. In that climate, you have been tasked with delivering a consistent income. Could you maybe talk us through how you've managed to achieve that? And, and do you have to look at things differently through an income prism? Uh, well, well, yes. Um, I mean, since the fund was launched back in 2015, We've obviously had a couple of very challenging periods for income investors. And as you mentioned, firstly Brexit and then the pandemic, where we saw lots of companies cutting their dividends to, to preserve cash, you know, which wasn't great for income investors, clearly. Um, but to help avoid these situations, we've really focused our investment process around what we are trying to achieve for clients, which is in essence based on providing a stable and consistent income, um, you know, pence per share pounds in pockets, rather than focusing on just, say, a high yield that can result in chasing income and buying into investments that undermine what you're ultimately trying to achieve for the end investor and lead you to paying out income at the expense of capital. Let's maybe take a sort of general step back and, and, and look at the portfolio on a, on a sort of wider, uh, wider sphere. Um, you have a number of sort of long-term thematic trends that run through the portfolio. Can you, can you talk us through a few of them, well, talk us through all of them really, and just give us a bit of an insight on how they benefit investors and, and how you go about identifying these trends? Yeah, we certainly can do. Um, I mean, to go through all of them would take quite a while. Um, yeah. So we'll maybe pick off uh, a few of them. Uh, but themes are incredibly relevant for us. Uh, our macro themes, we, we tend to split our thematic uh, views from, from macro to micro. And macro themes tend to inform us about the asset allocation-related topics. And our micro themes are much more orientated to, to industry and company-specific opportunities. And good examples of the macro discussion include big government, um, as we move away from our reliance on export and jobs and manufacturing to low-cost areas and focus more on great power competition a great example of the micro thematic exposures uh, at Newton is our natural capital theme. That ultimately evolved from our previous theme, which was called Earth Matters, which came about way back in 2005 due to our concerns on global warming. So well before kind of uh, everybody got up to, to speed on, on that over the last uh, kind of three to five years going through the pandemic. As we came through the pandemic, it was clear to everyone and the investment community that you know the Earth did matter. Um, and so we've evolved that theme to, to natural capital to indicate we've moved on and we're looking for the areas that benefit from significant, uh, significant capital spending requirements to help us meet our goals of reducing the human impact on climate change. And that's things like you know, EVs, renewables, energy efficiency, um, and underlying that natural capital theme. We've also evolved some of the underlying themes there, the sub-themes, such as clean energy, uh, which has evolved to decarbonisation, to indicate you know it's not just about solar and wind farms. Uh, there are other, many other methods in which we can reduce our carbon emissions. Uh, and a great example of that, um, for instance, is, is buildings which make up 25% of global carbon emissions. 
um, which comes effectively just from heating and ventilating our offices. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can find ways to reduce the carbon intensity of this, um, then we can also help to meet our carbon goals. So, you know, new heating and ventilation or HVAC systems are 20 to 30% more efficient than the legacy systems. So just upgrading HVAC systems, you can have a material effect uh, on carbon emissions in a higher power price environment. And the payback period and upgrading your HVAC system is much shorter now. So this leads to companies like Train Technologies, which is one of the investments we have, which is one of the leaders in HVAC systems, where we think they have a long runway for HVAC installation. Um, as management teams of corporations are under intense pressure uh, to reduce their their lifetime carbon emissions and disclose carbon emissions. Um, And an easy way to start on on reducing your carbon emissions is just to upgrade your HVAC systems. Uh, But it also makes financial sense to do so, given the better energy efficiencies and higher power price environment that we're currently in. And just just for listeners, and one of the themes that perhaps is quite relevant in the in the market today is obviously um, the, the the idea of deglobalization. I mean, that's something a lot of investors will have heard about, perhaps don't understand the longer term implications. Could, could you talk us through that? I mean, is that a relatively new theme for you? How does that work out in practice? Just give us a run through of how how that theme is is sort of being used in the portfolio at the moment. Yes, yeah, so, I mean that, that's you know one of the, the big themes that really helps with. Um, I guess the views on asset allocations and in particular inflation, and it's one of the core components on our our views or our theme on on big government uh, and great power competition. Um, Because governments in the West look to move away and solely focus on the low costs, uh, they're they're more likely to be looking away from countries uh, that don't have the same priorities and values that we do. And And that's all about security. And that's leading to a lot of tension with trade wars and tech wars. Um, and essentially, over the last couple of decades, we've really benefited from the deflationary effects of globalization. Mm-hmm. And so if we're moving into a world where perhaps there is uh, less uh, globalization, even if we stop globalization, uh, that will be somewhat inflationary going forward because we won't be benefiting from, from those lower cost manufacturing centers. Um, and so therefore, the, the level of inflation relative to what we've seen over the last couple of de- decades will be slightly more elevated. Now, if we look towards um, really deglobalization, then that's likely to be somewhat more inflationary because we'll be trying to not just stop exporting some of the high-cost jobs to low-cost areas, but we'll be trying to re-onshore or friendshore, as they call it, um, back into Western economies. And we're just it's just a higher labor cost, higher cost base uh, to be doing things uh, in the West. And so we're going to have to try and find ways as to to reduce the the, the impact of those those higher costs. Okay, and just as a just as a bit of a backdrop before before we move on, obviously this isn't just you know a couple of you in a room. This this is using the full wider powers of BMY as a business and Newton as a business. Could you maybe just talk us through the the sort of team you have in the background that helps you with these decisions? Yeah, so we've got uh, a very much a kind of multi-dimensional investment process at Newton. So we've got a huge number of analysts and they're very much focused on trying to find the best ideas uh, in their coverage. And they recommend uh, securities to us, portfolio management team, um, and a multi-asset desk. There's there's eight of us uh, that are looking after portfolios. And we're just trying to pick from that menu of ideas uh, the best companies that suit the risk and reward process for each of the funds that we manage, and clearly for the multi-asset income strategy, 
we're very much focused on the stability of income. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to ensure that income can be delivered uh, in an environment uh, that's even tough times uh, for income. Um, so we very much have to have a, a focus on that multidimensional research function. And that includes you know, having forensic uh, accounting exposures that can uh, really d- delve into the accounts of some of the companies that we're invested in. But also uh, out in San Francisco, um, we've got our systematic team is very much using quantitative processes uh, to try and develop tools uh, that can help um, try and look at where we think uh, markets and economies uh, are, are going, and that can help with our both our stock selection, industry selection, and asset allocation views, and it'll all feed into ultimately the individual security selection. You met, you mentioned markets and, and views. I mean, change is is the big word in the markets at the moment. We've seen a lot of change in the last twelve months with the rise of inflation. Um, obviously, bonds have also come back into vogue. Throughout the life of this fund, it's had a, a reasonable allocation to alternatives as a way of sort of offering a diverse sort of stream of income to investors at a time when there's been a lot of dearth. But that change in environment has perhaps brought bonds back into focus as an opportunity. Um, I guess talk us through what you've been doing and you know, looking looking a bit deeper, are alternatives essentially as essential as they once were within a portfolio now, given bonds are more attractive? I mean, the great thing about some of the alternative asset classes um, is that the, it's the inflation protection mm-hmm. uh, that they provide. Um, but within the portfolios, clearly we've gone from a world in which we could get no return. In fact, we had negative return from, from many parts of the bond market over the last decade, uh, particularly the last five years. And so we've had very low allocations to bonds and quite high allocations to alternatives. And clearly that really worked. Um, last year in 2020-22 um, because bonds and equity sold off in unison. Um, and we were somewhat protected against that because our investment process was very much focused um, on trying to find attractive opportunities. Um, you know, Ultimately, we do multi-asset very differently than a lot of other people do multi-asset in that we're essentially investors, not asset allocators. Um, and so all of the securities are individually selected rather than, you know, carving out our equity portfolios and giving it to uh, an equity team and our bonds to a bond team. Um, and so that really brought into focus, you know, the, the types of securities we wanted to own. And very few of those securities uh, were in the bond market because on a forward looking basis, we felt they offered very little in the way of return and very little in the way of diversification for, for a multi-asset portfolio. Now, as you mentioned, you know, that backdrop has, has changed quite significantly over the last 12 months. And so we've gone from uh, at the beginning of last year owning just over 10% in bonds um, to now owning just under 30% uh, in bonds. So quite a material shift in the allocation to bonds. Um, and then unlike a lot of the headlines that we see, you know, the 60, uh, 40 portfolios dead, we very much believe it's more like the rebirth of the 60, 40. Um, and bonds are now buyable again. They offer a return and going forward, given all of the concerns and inflation are, are now out there uh, in, in the investment community, uh, we think that bonds will be uh, much better diversifiers against equities within the portfolio construction process because be, uh, you know, the inflation concerns are very much in the price. Mm-hmm. And we think they're much more likely now, particularly in the, the government bond market, which is where we've, we've allocated a large proportion of that increase to bonds, they're much more likely to offer diversification 
and be focused on the growth outlook rather than the inflation outlook. That bond exposure obviously has come at the expense of alternatives, but you're by no means sort of, you know, ticking them out of the house with all their luggage. You're still very much interested in them as a diverse income stream. Could you maybe give us a couple of examples of of a couple of asset classes that offer, for example, that inflation protection that you, you're really keen on at the moment? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, a lot of what we invest in, I mean, alternatives is a very broad church. Yes. Uh, but much of what we're invested in and interested in is really that kind of real asset exposure. Things mm-hmm. that ha- either have um, inflation-linked revenue streams uh, or those real assets that tend to do well um, when inflation uh, starts to pick up. Um, now, unfortunately, you know, real estate's not one of those um, in that, uh, you know they, they they do have inflation linkage in terms of their rental streams, but that's only going to survive if um, your tenants can afford uh, to to pay that that increased rent. And when inflation is very high, it becomes increasingly unlikely uh, that those contracts will hold. But we're much more interested in things like renewable energy, where you know you've got fixed inflation linked revenue streams. There's this huge demand decarbonize uh, our power generation. Um, and we like to be in areas where there's demand for capital. Um, and, you know, when you look at some of the numbers, you know, trying to decarbonize our economies, you know, we're looking at spending up to $50 trillion. And when we started talking about this many years ago, you know, we were, we were thinking $5 trillion was an extremely big number. Um, and now we're, we're, you know, 10 times that number today. Uh, in terms of the the expectations or consensus expectations of the amount of capital that has to go into the ground um, to help uh, with the decarbonisation efforts. And so that's a massive tailwind for, for companies in those areas. But importantly for us, um, when we look at renewable energy assets, particularly within the UK context, these are operational assets, um, which in many respects uh, do something similar to bonds in the portfolio in that they deliver very stable kind of income streams. Uh, so they're very bond-like in nature, but they also have that inflation protection because the contracts um, with uh, with governments are fixed and inflation linked and ha- they are a large proportion of the overall revenues of the business. Um, so we do think that real assets such as, such as renewables, so we, don't, we certainly don't think we're going to kick the baby out of the bathwater. Um, what's interesting here is bonds are just competing much more effectively for our investors' capital, so it's right that we reallocate away from the alternatives um, when, uh, I guess, the, the valuations across markets um, have changed. But in terms of if you're looking at the, the thematic backdrop, which we believe, you know, as we come through to the back end of this year, you know, deflation might be the, the word that's, that's printed in, in the press and the people will start talking about again. But in the longer term, um, if we are looking to, to reduce our um, globalization efforts and, and much more focused on security of supply of some of these key components, um, that will have a, a more inflationary effect. And therefore, you're going to want to have some real assets in the portfolio for those periods when inflation picks up and bonds do less well. So from a portfolio construction process, there are, there are a uniquely uh, diversifying asset class to, to have in the portfolio. Let's let's um, go straight on to that because I was going to ask you about deflation because we we talked before and we mentioned how that could be a a word that takes up a lot of column inches by the end of this year. If we do get to that scenario, and maybe you can give us an idea of how likely you think that is, does that make a material impact on the state of your portfolio today? I.e., 
our bond's going to be worth a lot less. Just, just, just give us an insight on how much change you'd have to do should should that happen. Yeah, so I mean, it's very similar. I mean, one of the, the things we talk about a lot, uh, particularly for the multi-asset income strategy, is we're trying to find securities that can pay and grow their income streams. Mm-hmm. And if we can find those companies, then the capital should look after itself. And then, you know, alongside that, you know, you're organically growing your income through the dividend growth of, of some of these faster growing companies. But if we can then get the opportunities when markets are volatile to make asset allocation shifts, then we should also be able to, to, to increase uh, our, our dividends for shareholders through, through that process as well, as we reallocate from you know, areas that have done well um, and therefore yields have, have fallen um, as prices have, have risen um, to areas that have done less well and therefore incomes um, have risen as, as prices have fallen. And that's key to the investment process as we go through the cycle is, is that asset allocation process and not being constrained um, with fixed asset class weights. Um, and so as you know, we talk about, you know, what are the chances of this happening? Well, particularly in a UK context, you know, the year-on-year uh, oil price effect, um, you know, oil price was much higher last year than it is this year. So that's now a negative contributor towards inflation. Central banks are very concerned um, about uh, bringing inflation back down again. So the likelihood is they're going to keep interest rates higher for longer. Um, and uh, particularly in the United States, given the banking situation, that in itself is, is having a credit tightening mechanism as credit standards uh, have, have uh, risen from the US banking sector. And that will create some uh, constriction within the economy. But some of these effects will take nine to 12 months to be uh, to, to, to be brought through. Um, and if you're slowing down the economy through those credit uh, situations, but also having a, a negative year-on-year effect with oil price in the UK, you look to the, the LDI crisis um, at the back end of last year. Uh, well, back then, you know, sterling was at 105 to the dollar. We're now up at 125. Um, so year-on-year, that will have a deflationary impact as well uh, as the cost of our imports falls on a year-on-year basis. Um, and so I think a lot of investors will be quite surprised at how fast inflation comes down at the back end of the year, uh, as well, you know, policymakers uh, have continued to see inflation as, as a key thing. Uh, they don't want to, to lift the foot off the gas on um, because we've had a couple of times already uh, where we've seen some indications that inflation is, is, is going to start coming down and then it's picked up again. So central banks really want to get uh, the service sector inflation down, and that's about resetting, I guess, wage inflation expectations. Um, and, and I think as we go through the year, that's what central banks will be very much focused on. And that will entail getting unemployment up um, to the point where people worry more about having a job than, than having uh, um, a wage rise. Uh, and so that should bring some of the inflation off uh, in the shorter term. But given the, the larger allocation we have to government bonds, we think they should do uh, quite well through that period as people start worrying more about deflation and inflation. And that will then be the time to rotate back into some of those inflation-linked assets um, as people think they, they have less need for them in their portfolio. And, and just lastly, to sort of bring it all together, you know, we've talked about the, the number of asset classes you invest in, the various types of assets you invest in, and, and the, the sheer size of the team that supports the fund. Um, 
how do you do you manage a fund in a, in a period like this where there is a lot of uncertainty we've talked about deflation inflation we haven't even really gone into recession do, do you do you run the portfolio with like a, a set position that's ready for anything do you have to like does it matter do you have to take a position on markets when you build the portfolio or are you sort of ready for any scenario is, is the built is the portfolio built to take that sort of attrition of changing market conditions well i mean it's very difficult because you know we don't have the crystal ball, so we never yes. know what exactly is going to happen. And that's one of the things um, I'm very focused on reiterating to the team: is let's not try uh, bet the house on on one backdrop. Let's try and have a range of outcomes um, where we think we'll do well in, in many of those 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 outcomes, and try and bias our opportunities into the areas with the highest probabilities of success. What we want to do is keep an open mind um, and where we we are most likely to benefit um, is when there are extreme changes in the marketplace um, and that will allow us to pick up opportunities when when others are fearful. Um, And so the investment philosophy that we have, it kind of turns investment on its head because what we're looking for is very different from what other people are looking for. Absolute return investors are very much focused on on uh, locking down capital um, when when markets are volatile. Relative return investors are, are really focused on outperforming an index. What we're trying to achieve um, is an outcome that's very much income orientated, where we can provide clients the confidence that year in year out will provide a stable and growing income for them, uh, whether that's for retirement, whether that's because they believe in the power of compounding. And what we need to avoid is investing in areas where the income becomes susceptible to a downturn um, when the hard times lead to dividend cuts and, and income cuts, because that's the most important time for us, um, you know, because that's when our clients really need the income as perhaps other income uh, sources of income have dried up. Um, it's, it's when the power of compounding is at its best because you'll be in an area where you can reinvest into low valuations that'll power your wealth creation over the longer term. Um, so it's not just for people that need an income, it's also a way of investing. And so if you can find the companies that have a high degree of confidence uh, that will pay the income in a downturn, um, then you can reinvest that income and really power the long-term wealth creation. And you know, unique uh, in the income space, you know, we uh, were very fortunate that we're very focused on, on that income orientation because as we went through the pandemic, we saw lots of dividend cuts um, uh, from, from companies trying to, to shore up their balance sheets and, and conserve cash. Um, whereas we were invested in areas that were, uh, were growing their dividends going through the pandemic. So whilst we weren't immune to dividend cuts, uh, we did provide a stable income for investors going through that period where a lot of income funds, particularly UK income funds, uh, saw dividend cuts for uh, as much as 30%. So having an investment philosophy that's very much focused on ensuring you can achieve what you set out to achieve is important to avoid the behavioral biases of, of buying and selling at the wrong times. It's, it's the great thing about being global and multi-asset. You know, we're just waiting for something to happen in the marketplace that we can take the opportunity uh, to, to invest in. Key to that is making sure you're, you're well diversified and you're not overexposed to any one characteristic or any asset class. 
That, that's great, Paul. Thank you very much for giving us an intro to the fund. I, I certainly agree on the, the compounding point you made as well. I still think a lot of people um, overlook that, but I, I, we appreciate your time today and uh, for speaking to us. Thank you very much for having us. The BMY Mellon Multi-Asset Income Fund offers investors an unconstrained and flexible approach, and as we've heard today, takes advantage of Nugent's extensive resources. This approach provides a stable and expanding income stream, as well as the potential for capital appreciation. To learn more about the BMY Mellon Multi-Asset Income Fund, visit fundcaliber.com, and don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only.